today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Others classify this story as allegorical, that it's not really a true story, it's just an allegory that paints the picture of God's mercy and His forgiveness for sinners. That theme is definitely there, but those who take the allegorical position believe it's not a true story. When in fact, this story really needs to be received as not fictional, not allegorical, but factual. Jonah was a real person. Some people don't believe that the entire Bible is factual. They think that some of the stories are far-fetched and just can't possibly be true. The story of Jonah is one of those stories that people don't believe. How can a person possibly live in the belly of a fish for three days? But even Jesus referenced Jonah in the New Testament as an actual event. In today's message, Pastor Gary will explain that the entire Bible is true, even the story of Jonah. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Jonah as he begins his message, The Mercy of God. Boy, have I got a whale of a story for you today. <laughs> you knew that was coming. That's a little fishy. Yeah, I know, but we're here in the book of Jonah, so what do you expect me to say? The last 12 books of the Old Testament are known as the Minor Prophets, and we come now to probably the most familiar of them all. Even for people who don't know the Bible, most people are familiar with this story about Jonah and the whale. Although I have to tell you that the word whale does not appear in any English translation of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's just simply a great fish. So we don't know what kind of a great fish. Could have been a, a sperm whale. It could have been a sulfur bottom whale. It could have been a whale shark. It could have been something large, but the Bible just doesn't say. The Hebrew word for fish used in the text is dag, D-A-G, as in dag. What a big fish. Uh, <laughs> But, but this is the story that is most familiar to a lot of people. And before we get into the story itself, a little background on Jonah and the book that bears his name. Uh, the book of Jonah is included among the prophetic books, but it is very different from the other prophetic books in that this is more of a narrative. This is more of a story. It's less about what Jonah said. It's less about his actual message And it's more about what he did or what he didn't do. And it is somewhat of an embarrassing narrative at that because a prophet of God writes about his own disobedience to God. That's what this book is about in in large part. None of the other prophets rebel against God or make an overt attempt to sidestep God's divine will like Jonah does. So um, this is his story and God has preserved it for us. And there are many reasons, and we'll look at one particular theme today. 
the name Jonah is pronounced Yonah in Hebrew. It's with a Y, not a J. And his name literally means dove, dove, Yonah. We first read of Jonah in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25, when he is a prophet during the reign of King Jeroboam II, making his reign around 780 BC, some mid 8th century BC, a time when, and this is important, a time when, mid 8th century BC, when the Assyrian Empire was on the rise. We'll talk about that in a moment. And this makes Jonah a contemporary of a couple of other minor prophets, Amos and Hosea. They all prophesy and minister during the same time period. There's probably a lot I could say about Jonah, uh, but I'm going to just keep it to one theme today, and we'll do a survey of the whole book. But let's start here just with chapter 1 first. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God. Notice the sailors are pagans here. They're they're crying out to their gods. And they threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Now, pause for a moment. You know, I mean, I suppose his intentions are that he fears God, but his actions show otherwise. I mean, he doesn't fear God enough to obey God. He's fleeing from God. But anyway, that's how he presents himself to these pagan sailors. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, And then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. And then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, we pray, O Lord... Please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Notice they're crying out to Jonah's God now. These pagan sailors all of a sudden get religion, right? Because they realize we're we're being tossed to and fro here. It was supposed to be just a a three-hour trip, you know, and all of a sudden it's turned into... Anyway, if you're old enough to know Gilligan's Island, you know that whole deal. And it's turned into this terrible storm here. And all of a sudden now they start crying out to Jonah's God, verse 15. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. 
And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. And then the chapter ends saying, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Some of you may be familiar with the name Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll fought in the Civil War. He was a Civil War vet. He was a lawyer and a politician after that. And he was also a humanist. He was a very opposed and very outspoken critic of Christianity. In fact, he was nicknamed the great agnostic in the 19th century, despite the fact that his father was a Presbyterian pastor and his father was an assistant to Charles Finney. Ingersoll grew up in a very devout Christian home, but he had gone a different direction. And as this outspoken critic of Christianity, the story is told one day of Robert Ingersoll, who engaged this woman in conversation on a street corner. She was with the Salvation Army, and she was on a street corner sharing the gospel of Jesus with people as people were walking by. And Ingersoll started making fun of her and got the crowds laughing at her. And he said to the woman, you don't really believe the Bible, do you? And she said, of course I do. And he said, what about that story of Jonah and the whale? You don't honestly believe that story, do you? She said, I do. And he said to her, how do you suppose that he survived all that time inside the belly of a fish? And she answered, she said, I don't know, but I guess when I get to heaven, I'll ask him. And Ingersoll said to her, well, what if you get to heaven and you find out that he's not there, that he's actually gone to hell? She said to him, well, then I suppose you can ask him. Some interpret this story, as Ingersoll did, as fictional, a fable, something out of Herman Melville's Moby Dick. Others classify this story as allegorical, that it's not really a true story, it's just an allegory that paints the picture of God's mercy and his forgiveness for sinners. That theme is definitely there, but those who take the allegorical position believe it's not a true story. When in fact, this story really needs to be received as not fictional, not allegorical, but factual. Jonah was a real person. This really happened. He was swallowed by a great fish. He was barfed up by that same fish, and he went on to preach to some really pagan people in Iraq. That's what this story is about. The best evidence for it being factual is because Jesus said it was. Uh, Jesus refers to this story twice in Matthew chapter 12 and again in Matthew 16, and he doesn't refer to it as a fable, as, as just a parable or an allegory. He refers to it as an actual event that happens. In fact, he compares what happened with Jonah and the miracle of how God preserved his life three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish to his own impending crucifixion and resurrection and the time between the two that he will spend in the heart of the earth. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12, 40. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so Jesus makes this comparison, not to a fable, but to an actual story, to an actual event, to an actual man who was swallowed by a great fish. Now, over the centuries, there have actually been a few rare documented cases of people who have been swallowed by a large fish. Uh, Things that are large enough to swallow human beings would be 
a sperm whale, a sulfur bottom whale, a whale shark. Uh, One story that surfaced in 1891, published in the Yarmouth Mercury newspaper in England, was about one James Bartley, who fell overboard during a whaling expedition in the Falkland Islands. Uh, They gave him up for dead until two days later they were filleting a whale they had harpooned. And when they got to the stomach content, they found Bartley alive, but shriveled and white from the gastric juices. The New York Times picked up the story in 1896. I want you to picture, you know, what a surprise when they cut open the stomach contents of this of this whale to find James Bartley all shriveled and bleached white from the gastric juices. I want you to picture Smeagol from Lord of the Rings. And that event was actually written about in a few other publications. Ambrose John Wilson wrote about it in the Princeton Theological Review in 1927, and also by the great British engineer Sir Francis Fox. He referred to it in 1924 in his writing, 63 Years of Engineering. So you can Google it. Some say it's an urban myth, uh, but there are several publications about it that have documented it. And just as a matter of fact, sperm whales are capable for example, of swallowing humans. They live on squid, which they swallow whole. And in 1955, there was a documented case of a 405-pound squid removed intact from the belly of a sperm whale. So you'll have to decide for yourself if this is a true story or not. I settled it years ago as a true story because I believe Genesis 1-1. If you can get by Genesis 1-1, then you can believe the rest of the Bible. If you choke at Genesis 1-1, you're going to choke on a lot of the rest of the Bible. So it's factual. Uh, It is something that you have to believe by faith because none of us was there to eyewitness this. Uh, There are some liberal uh, Old Testament uh, professors and theologians who will tell you that it isn't true, but since Jesus said it was, I will choose him over any Old Testament professor any day. Now, there's one major theme I want us to focus on as we do a survey through these four chapters of the book of Jonah, and it's this. The book of Jonah is about the mercy of God. It really is about the mercy of God. And just so that we understand what we're talking about, God's mercy is his love kindness, and compassion towards people. That's the main theme of this book. It's God's love, kindness, and compassion towards people. In Psalm 145, verse 8, it says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and great in mercy. He's great in mercy. He abounds in mercy. The Bible says He is merciful. It is an attribute of God. And He opts for his mercy long before his wrath. He's a merciful God. And we're going to see four things about God's mercy from the book of Jonah today. And so in chapter 1 here, even though Jonah disobeys God initially, we see God's mercy extended towards the Ninevites in the way that he calls Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites in hopes that they might turn, repent from their sins, and turn to God. Now, who were the Ninevites? So, for those of you taking notes, the Ninevites were Assyrians. They were ancient Assyrians. 
They were called Ninevites because they lived in the city of Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It was situated along the east bank of the Tigris River. The the ruins of Nineveh are still there today, just on the outskirts of Mosul, Iraq. So that's where this story takes place here. At least that's where the heart of God is directed towards the Ninevites. They are Assyrians. They occupy the capital city of Nineveh, which is, again, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. But being Assyrians, they were a ruthless, godless people. I've referred to the Assyrians before in our journey through the Old Testament, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with them, the Assyrians were notorious for their savage brutality with regard to wartime practices. When they would conquer a city, they would impale people on stakes, they would rape the women, burn the children, chop off hands, cut off heads, rip out tongues, flay people while alive, mutilate the dead, pillage and then burn the city. And the prisoners of war that they would take, they would string together like fish with hooks through their jaws or their noses, string them together, drag them uh, off to Assyria and take them as prisoners of war. They are a ruthless, barbaric, savage people. And yet, God says to Jonah, I want you to go preach the good news to them in hopes that they might turn from their evil ways and turn to me. These people, God says to Jonah, are worth saving. It's very challenging. God extends his mercy to the worst of worst, like even the ruthless Assyrians. But this is God's way. Ezekiel 33:11 says, "As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live." God longs to be merciful to every person on the planet. And so number 1, God's mercy is undeserved. I mean, do you think these people really deserved it by the way that they lived and the practices that they engaged in? And the truth is, maybe you haven't done some of the stuff that they've done. I hope that you haven't cut anybody's tongue out. I hope that you haven't chopped off anybody's hands or filleted them while still alive. But the fact of the matter is that all of us are in equal need of God's mercy. All of us. This is the reason why Paul describes himself in 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 as the worst of all sinners. In that verse, he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, New King James says. NIV says, of whom I am the worst. Now, Paul didn't look around at other people and compare himself to others. He looked to God and realized that between himself and God, the way that he measured himself was looking at God and his perfection and holiness and righteousness. And he realized in comparison to God, I'm the worst of all sinners. He didn't care about other people in the room. Because that's not the basis, that's not the standard by which we will be judged. Paul looked at himself in light of who God is, and he says, I'm the worst of all sinners. I'm the worst of all sinners. All of us should be willing to say such a thing and stop playing the comparison game and think of ourselves more favorably or less favorably based on the comparison of other people around us. There's only one standard by which we will be judged. When Paul looked at his life in comparison to God, he says, you know what? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst. But yet he adds in the next verse in 1 Timothy 1.16, however, for this reason, 
I was shown mercy. See, he realized, I'm the greatest sinner of all because I'm not looking at what other people have done. It's just me and the Lord. But in that, in that perspective of who I am in relation to God, I see myself as the worst of sinners, and yet I'm also the one who's going to receive his great mercy because that's the character and nature of God. God extends mercy to all because God wants all to be saved. And all of his mercy is undeserved. None of us deserve it. The Ninevites certainly didn't deserve it. But God in his mercy extends it. Now, unfortunately, Jonah didn't think that the Ninevites were worth saving, which means that he thought of himself as a higher authority than God. He thought he was a better judge of the Ninevites than God was. And so he disobeys God's calling. God says, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah's like, "Uh -uh, I ain't going there. Those Ninevite people are not worth saving. I'm not going to go preach to them. And so he disobeys the call of God, and he boards a boat in the port city of Joppa. He's living in Israel. Joppa's a port city on the Mediterranean. It's called Joppa today. He goes down to Joppa, gets on a boat, heading to, the Bible says, Tarshish. Now, Herodotus, the 5th century B.C. historian, says that Tarshish was Spain. Jonah's supposed to go east to Nineveh. This is Iraq. Okay, he's living in Israel. supposed to go east. He decides to get in a boat and go west. That's how far he's trying to go to Spain, which is at that time the farthest part part of the known world as far as you can go west. And so he's trying to run from God. I'm not going to go to preach to the Ninevites. Are you you crazy, God? I'm not going to go do that. And so he runs. And God could have chosen to put an end to Jonah's life right there. Gets in a boat. I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm disobeying God. And in his arrogance... And insolence against God and disobedience, God could have chosen right there, enough of you. But God chose to spare Jonah's life. And more than that, God chose to give Jonah a second chance. How many of you are thankful for the many chances God gives us? Amen? Amen. And so when the storm rages at sea, these pagan sailors, they start crying out to their pagan gods. So that, that's to no avail. So then Jonah's asleep. In, in the hull of the boat. So they wake him up. Jonah, you know, you need to pray to your God. And Jonah's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. About the storm. Um, I'm, I'm kind of the cause. Like, what, what do you mean you're the cause? Well, I, I'm, I'm running from God. You know, I'm a Hebrew. I, I fear God. And, and he sent me on this mission. And I'm, I'm running from I'm the cause of the storm. What you need to do is throw me overboard and the storm will subside. Now, Jonah knows this. He knows the storm is raging because God is trying to get Jonah's attention. And Jonah realizes that these other guys are, they're going to get caught in the storm because of my sin. Just throw me overboard. It'll go well with you. Now, I want you to notice something from chapter one that it tells us. It says that these sailors with good intention try to row back to land to drop Jonah off. Did you see that in chapter 1? Because he says, just throw me overboard. They're like, no, we can't do that kind of a thing. That's not a nice thing. That's a cruel thing to do. So we're going to try to row you back to land. And the Bible says the harder they try to row, the more tempestuous the storm becomes. Why? Because they're interfering with what God wants to do. The warnings and prophecies found in the Minor Prophet books can be intense, but they remind you of one thing. God is patient. 
He doesn't exact judgment on those who have sinned immediately. Instead, God shows mercy. He gives you ample time to come to Him in repentance, handing the wrongs you've committed over to Him and letting His love restore you. Because of that love for His creation, God sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place, taking your sins with Him. Jesus' death provides you the opportunity at a new life and forgiveness for all your wrongs. Are you ready to come to Jesus in repentance today and receive this grace? We'd like to talk more with you, so please give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. We also want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45 a.m., as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to get all the information you need along with directions to our campus. If you're not able to be with us in person, we do offer each service online as well. Again, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to connect. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary's message, and we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. You know